Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. Hello, subscribers and frequent listeners. I'm sure you can understand the extra time between episodes. Lots of following the news, refreshing certain pages to see counts, and there were also some health issues. But we're back now this week with a new episode. Uh, also, the hinted special Halloween content did not work out for Forest of Noise this October, but uh, Project is Not Dead. I've been talking to my collaborator, and we still want to do it, so we're going to pursue it, but this time be able to take our time and perhaps be able to make a, a stronger product of that. So I'll, I'll occasionally update that when I know things. Lots of websites, magazines, and other groups are starting to offer their best of lists. Uh, I'll be keeping my eye on those and adding those to my to-reads list, but at this time, I do not know if Book Club of One will be having a best of list. If we do, I'll try and spread it out over more than one episode, because frankly, whenever this show goes over 30 minutes of recorded time, it feels like I've been talking to myself for quite a while. If you definitely want one, uh, do reach out through Instagram or Gmail. Offer your opinions. You can feel free to do that. And perhaps that maybe I'll read them. And then other benchmarking notes. Three more episodes will have us reach 100 books, assuming that I still am able to do another three episodes this year, which are likely to happen. So as is usual, we're going to start this episode off with our readings on social issues. Uh, the book this time, though, ever, however, is a bit different. It's a break from nonfiction. So that will be starting after the little break. Okay, so our first featured book, again, our, our reading and social issues. Uh, so our first book is Lost in the City by Edward P. Jones, an African-American novelist and short story writer. His 2003 book, The Known World, received the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2004 and the 2005 International Dublin Literary Award. I heard of this book through Nancy Pearl, uh, most likely where when it was mentioned in her book of interviews with Jeff Schwager, The Writer's Library, which we featured in an earlier episode. Lost in the City is a collection of short stories focusing on the lives of African Americans in Washington, D.C. It is arranged by the age of the main character from the 1950s to the 1980s. So the earlier stories feature children as the, the, the main character before the final story, which ends with a retired gentleman. Uh, this book received the Penn Hemingway Foundation Award in 1993 and the National Book Award finalist for fiction in 1992, the year it was released. So reading through these stories, they were short, but felt like fully realized snapshots of portions of these people's lives. So very detailed, uh, very easy to empathize or understand where the characters were coming from. So one of the first stories is about a young child being taken to school for the first time 
and her mother needing help to fill out the forms because she was illiterate. Uh, and a later early story is a young girl finding a hobby in keeping pigeons and the consequences that would have for her, for her family. It certainly brings up direct first person accounts or ways to picture people living and uh, dealing with issues that we've discussed with other readings on social issues. So we see in the neighborhood where these stories are centered, the population decline and forced demographic changes. So uh, again, from the 1950s to the 1980s, we see the population change from kind of the, the, the workers, like people running stores or, or doing handyman type jobs uh, until it shifts, the neighborhood shifts over to housing developments. We also see the role of institutions in these people's lives. So again, schooling comes up in many of their earlier stories, but as the, the timeline progresses, we also shift to seeing more with the churches. One of the chapters centers around a woman who leads a church singing group as they are going around to do their typical week's work. In preparing for this, I learned that the author was inspired by James Joyce's Dubliners, and we, we certainly see that, like these little slices of life throughout a single area. One of the things I kept waiting to see is if, as things progressed, we'd see other characters mentioned or featured earlier from another's perspective. And I didn't catch any of that, but that doesn't mean it was there. Book two finds us still finishing up from October and spooky or Halloween reads. So book two is Dark Archives, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin. It is by Megan Rosenblum, an American librarian and co-founder of the Death Salon, a group that encourages conversations on mortality and mourning and their resonating effects on our culture and history through conferences and public events. I've known about this book since it was first listed as progress in progress by Megan Rosenblum through her social media accounts. Uh, big disclaimer with this book, I was on the periphery of the Anthropodermic Book Project, and I am cited in this book twice. All sorts of excitement for that. Dark Archives is Rosenblum's exploration narrative of her discovery and quest to understand the practice of binding books and human skin. Rosenblum traces the history of several books, their appeal, and the more modern ethical considerations that may be necessary. So throughout the work, uh, again, Megan Rosenblum starts from the very beginning when she lived in Philadelphia and would visit the Mütter Museum. They have the largest confirmed anthropodermic books or books bound in human skin. So she traces kind of her early days with that awareness of those through this research project, because she formed uh, an anthropodermic book project working with uh, some museum and science professionals. So, uh, so for example, Dr. Richard Hark is part of that team, and he has uh, studied a lot with uh, spectroscopy, so 
knowing how to analyze different pigments in a painting, or for this case, the bits of skin from these bindings to see what they might have come from. And then Daniel Kirby was brought in as well, as he did a lot of peptide mass fingerprinting, which is the specific test that is fairly non-destructive. It requires a small amount to test the uh, collagen of these bindings to try and determine as close as possible what animal of origin it is. So uh, at the time of the material I was writing of this, as well as Rosenblum writing, uh, we can limit it to the human family, which could mean monkey or orangutan, but is most likely human. So in, in looking and reflecting on this book, as a librarian and, again, prior research on this topic, I found this an easy-to-read medical history and research journey, and it was a nice kind of check-in, almost like a conversation with a friend who you just, you know, you knew them a few years ago, and you're catching up to hear what they've been doing, since maybe you might not have talked for a little while. For readers not familiar with this topic, this is a very good, compact summary. Uh, most chapters are fairly short, uh, and while there it, there is extensive research involved, it isn't necessarily distracting in the narrative with all the foot, footnotes or citations. Rosenblum instead uses uh, sentence quotes in the cited portion to explain where different claims come from, or facts or figures. Uh, it does, however, cover some expected points, so I'm, I'm sure anytime human, the uses of human skin come up outside of their traditional uses, the conversation always winds up leading to the Holocaust and Auschwitz, and it, there is a section devoted to discussing the alleged human skin items. Uh, however, it does not make nearly as big a deal of them as Mark Jacobson did for his book about a supposed human skin lampshade lamp, which was disproven as having had human skin. Minor point. So in looking at this book, one of the things I did come back to is who was it, knowing Rosenblum's background, that chose when to publish this book? Again, it was published in October of this year. And considering how a lot of the content keeps bringing us back to these things were made of human skin, why? How? What do we think about those in these days? So that make, brings it to the major point for further discussion. How, once these books are confirmed as human skin, do we move the conversation beyond just that ick factor or the shock of wanting to see it just for its covering to the more important conversation, which Rosenblum, by publishing this book, is helping to accomplish, of making that more important conversation about what should be collected and preserved by our institutions? And what do these items say about the people that created them or the times in which they were created? Because again, for many of these, as you might have learned from maybe headline, head, highlight reading or reviews of reading, many of these books were bound uh, when they were owned by medical professionals who had easy access to skin. In our present day, that is more problematic than it might have been then. But again, if, if it was intended for private use, what does that say about those individuals?
So starting with book three, we transition back to fiction, and we'll be talking about fictional books for the rest of the show. So our third pick is Weird Women, classic supernatural fiction by groundbreaking female writers from 1852 to 1923. It was edited by Leslie S. Klinger, an American attorney and author who is a noted literary editor and annotator of classic genre fiction, including the Sherlock Holmes stories and the novels Dracula and Frankenstein, as well as more contemporary works like Neil Gaiman's The Sandman Comics and Alan Moore and David Gibbons' Watchmen graphic novel, as well as the stories of H.P. Lovecraft. He worked with Lisa Morton, who is a screenwriter, author of nonfiction books, Bram Stoker award-winning prose writer, and Halloween expert. She has published four novels, 150 short stories, and three books on the history of Halloween. So I came across Weird Women uh, in a Book Pages magazine feature issue for Halloween October. Weird Women, as you get from the title, is an exploration of horror and supernatural fiction through 21 short stories as written by women from that time period of 1850 to 1920s. Stories that did not make the final uh, published volume can still be found through the blog Weird Women, which the, the link for that is available in the show notes. This collection, as published, includes stories by Louisa May Alcott, known for Little Women, Frances Hodges Burnett, author of The Secret Garden, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman, author of The Yellow Wallpaper. So much more so than Dark Archives, this book was a wonderful Halloween read. I started in October 28th, but didn't manage to finish it in October. It happens. For each story, the editors offer a brief biographical sketch detailing the author's life and also discussing their writing history. Some of them only wrote a few short stories. Others wrote widely and published several books. So it gives us a nice variety of those, as well as stating where the story was initially published. As with any short story collection you read, uh, it works better to be read in bits. Trying to read to finish this before it was due made the last three or four stories blur. And again, like any collected edition, some of the stories are going to be much better than the others. However, within the category of supernatural fiction, it's nice to see such a divergence of topics or creatures. So in these stories, we have one centering around werewolves, ghosts, hauntings, mummies, and mad scientists. Uh, my particular three favorites are The Third Drug by Edith Nesbitt, uh, which, to try and give you a non-spoiler summary, is a, a man fleeing robbers finds shelter with a lonely surgeon who might have more in mind than just helping him heal his knife wound. Lost in the Pyramid or The Mummy's Curse by Louisa May Alcott uh, focuses on Paul, Paul Forsyth, when he returns from an Egyptian expedition with a box of mysterious seeds, and he and the professor he traveled with decide to plant them, and then they deal with the repercussions of what grows from those seeds. And finally, The Werewolf by Clements Hausman. Mysterious woman visits a family, and whoever she kisses disappears and is assumed dead. Can a twin brother save his twin from her kiss? as he runs off into a winter's night, tracing the mysterious woman. So again, certainly worth an exploration. Our fourth book is The Longships. 
So this was by Franz G. Bengtsson, a Swedish novelist, essayist, poet, and biographer. Uh, as far as I could tell, this was his only work of fiction. It was translated by Michael Meyer, uh, an English translator, biography, and dramatist. And it also included an introduction by Michael Chabon, uh, American author known for the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay. So I came across this uh, just browsing in the stacks at my local library, uh, and I noticed that it, the particular edition I read was the New York Review Books edition. So those are usually pretty distinctive. And anytime I come across one of those, I am very little likely to check it out because I like that those are usually global stories or uh, classic works translated from their original languages. So again, we see this one was translated from Swedish. So the Long Ships is uh, a Viking saga of Red Orm from his first journey as a kidnapped young man forced into uh, a rower on a ship about to pillage to his eventual return and establishing of a household in a border region before he sets off on one last great adventure. So it's a, a very fun hero's journey, a blend of history, humor, and adventure, happenstance, and old acquaintances reintroduced assist in many major plot points. Uh, we see Orm's full life from his, his youth, coming of age, his midlife career and marriage, to eventually settling and enjoying the fruits of his labor. Orm, as a main character, is shrewd, courageous, but unlucky, but he's also prone to melancholy, and when he gets sick or injured, definitely is a bit of a hypochondriac. So throughout his adventures, he, he travels into uh, Muslim Spain, into the English Isles and Ireland, as well as traveling into Russia or and, and throughout Scandinavia. So we get, get to see different parts of Europe. Uh, so as you'd expect from those different areas, we see treatment of religion coming up several times in different ways. Our last book of the episode is Hench by Natalie Zena Walshots, who is a freelance writer, community manager, and bailed academic based in Toronto. Came across this book, I think, when Nancy Pearl and Jeff Schwager were having their interview through Powell's about the writer's library. Nancy mentioned this as something she was currently reading. And Hench is about Anna, who works whatever jobs are available as a low-wage henchman for supervillains. When she finally secures a, a position that's a bit more promising, it falls apart when the superheroes come to the rescue and she is seriously injured in the process. Channeling her hatred into action while she recovers, she uses the accounting skills she learned as the low-level hench and her research skills to truly assess the costs of superheroes to society. So uh, I don't know if any of you have read it, but Brandon Sanderson wrote a book called Steelheart about supervillains gaining powers and taking over towns. I felt like this was a better version of that book where it's definitely concerned with who decides who has the power and what do we do about them, but with a much less aggravating narrator, main character. 
because in that one it's just a, uh, a boy who well a man who's just obsessed with guns and knowing all the supervillain weaknesses so they're both obsessed but anna is a, a little more grounded it also uh in all the blurbs and just from having read that it seems in part inspired or reminiscent of the boys as it as looking to subvert heroes as good guys but much less action oriented so in the boys you often have the the boys fighting against the supervillains or in in sort of belligerent encounters here those are much lower in scale they certainly are key points in the art narrative arc where they occur but they're not as regular and since this was not written by garth enos there are no major rape storylines so something to be thankful for looking at the the built world uh it is very entertaining looking at the bureaucracy of having superpowered individuals in this world. So uh, there are clear and well-filed plans on how to handle the supervillain if they're ever captured, uh, supporting organizations. So for example, one of the side characters is a tech specialist that is on call by one of the supervillains and often has to answer how to even use a DVD player or things like that. Or we see the henchmen divide into different classes where the ones, the muscle or mercenaries and toughs here are just simply described as meat, as disposable, as one of the more disposable categories. Anna, as a narrator, is very fun in the early, as she struggles early days from the, the low-level temp to becoming more established, just, again, balancing those first job or early job jitters, struggling to make ends meet. And while there are aspects in her later career that are equally entertaining, I was in some ways expecting uh, her, her rise to power to be more challenging. Things happen just a little more streamlined than I expected and found that a little disappointing how nicely it all came together. But that might also be because I was hoping for, for something more in the lines of the Venture Brothers and their take on henchmen. But this is a little more serious than that. So before we end for the week, I just want to take a moment to talk about two books I'm looking forward to read, uh, hopefully in the next two weeks. So the first of that, those is Conditional Citizen by Leila Lelami. Uh, and this asks, what does it mean to be American? In this starkly illuminating and impassioned book, Pulitzer Prize finalist Leila Lelami recounts her unlikely journey from Moroccan immigrant to U.S. citizen, using it as a starting point for her exploration of the rights, liberties, and protections that are traditionally associated with American citizenship. Tapping into her history, politics, and literature, she elucidates how accidents of birth such as national origin, race, and gender that once determined the boundaries of Americanists still their shadows today. And the other book uh, brings us in further into the world of Outlander, which I've finished book three, four is in my pile. I'll get to that soon. But this is a tangential series. So this is Lord John and the Hands of the Devil by Diana Gabladon. Uh, it is 
a collection of three shorter tale, three tales of war, intrigue, and espionage that feature one of her most popular characters, Lord John Grey. In the heart of the 18th century, here are haunted soldiers, lusty princesses, ghostly apparitions, dark family secrets. And Lord John will face enemies who come in the guises of friends, memories in the shape of a fire-haired Scot named James Fraser, and allies who have the power to destroy him with a single blow. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations, or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story, feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.